Michael Caine leads a group of actors through a doomed stage production. Which proves the old saying, the show must go on. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. discuss a film that deals with Broadway, why not use a perfect song like There's No Business Like Show Business. That, of course, comes from the movie we're about to discuss today, and that's sung by a woman named Nikki Harris. Uh, this is out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. On the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, we're here on Out of Touchstone. We're kicking off 1992. We're trying something new, as well as we mentioned on the last episode. So I'm, I'm curious to see how how this goes and hopefully the movie we're going to be discussing today isn't a omen of how this show is going to go <laughs> yeah as you mentioned i you know to kind of recap the last episode we did i think we, we mentioned i wanted to go into a reformat of sorts as we begin 1992 and it comes about from two different factors the first of which uh, was a 1991 memo by Jeffrey Katzenberg, which he wrote to his d- fellow Disney executives, where he was stressing the importance of trying to make smaller films with with better scripts and higher concepts, also trying to keep the cost down. This this idea of trying to have more singles and doubles rather than a home run so that we can get more movies into the marketplace, but with smaller budgets and kind of having good talent, but not expensive. And so that's something we're definitely going to be discussing on the movies today. Uh, but also, I also mentioned that in 1992, Touchstone only releases six films. And rather than just do three quick episodes, doing two movies a piece and then shooting through the year, I thought might, maybe it might be a more fun opportunity to look at the other movies being released by the studio, whether it be Walt Disney Pictures or Hollywood Pictures, because both of those branches actually ramped up their production in 1992. So there was a lot of movies kind of coming out of the studio from a group of executives where I assume we're all working together. And so it goes back to what I really wanted to accomplish when we first set out with this show, which was to look at these touchstone movies and see how they compare to the other movies and kind of get an overall sense of what was going on in Disney as a whole. And so as Chad said, yes, the movie we're going to discuss today is all about a production that is ripe with problems. So hopefully that won't be the case on the podcast we're about to record. Uh, but that first film was released on March 20th of 1992 by Touchstone Pictures, and it's called Noises Off. Touchstone Pictures presents the story of a little theater company headed for Broadway. Hold it! All they have to do is keep their lines straight. We'll only just manage to fit it in. I mean, we'll only just do it. I mean... Their clothes off. Okay, okay. Get in here. And their hands off each other. Like a battlefield back there. There is something funny going on here. Inspired by the hit Broadway comedy. What am I doing now? Noises Off. Rated PG-13. 
Yes, this was based on a stage play by Michael Frayne. It's premiered in, in London in 1982 and made its debut on Broadway in 1983. The, the play received four Tony nominations, including Best Play. Uh, I, I did want to mention there was a, an actor from the production who was nominated for a Tony for Best Actor, and his name is Douglas Seal. Chad, does the name Douglas Seal ring a bell? No, it does not, and I don't have a lame attempt at humor to make up a reason why it should, so... Uh, Douglas Seal played Santa Claus in Ernest Saves Christmas. Oh, yes, that is correct. <laughs> I, I, You know, I just heard that Douglas Seal wasn't real. <laughs> Only if you believe, Chad. Uh, but it was the, the play Noises Off was very successful on Broadway. In fact, there were two revivals in 2001 and 2015, and both times it received a Tony, a Tony Award nomination for Best Revival of a Play. So... Um, as the film was being developed, I read that in 1984, Columbia Pictures was interested in doing a film, a film adaptation, but only if Steven Spielberg would direct. Unfortunately, he was only interested in producing, so didn't, nothing really happened out of that. But by 1991, Touchstone had acquired the rights in conjunction with Amblin Entertainment, Spielberg's company. I don't know if you noticed that, Chad, when the credits rolled. I noticed Amblin was featured prominently in the credits, and I was like, oh, that, that would explain why Spielberg had yeah. any involvement. Um, I, I did see there was also, I think it's Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, who were names all over Lucasfilm and Spielberg movies. Their names are in the credits as well. They get producer credits as well. Um, the director who was hired for Noises Off was Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, you know, of course, his career goes all the way back to the late 1960s with his breakthrough film coming in 1971. That was The Last Picture Show. He followed that up with What's Up, Doc, Paper Moon. Uh, in, 19, in the 80s, he did Mask. He did a movie in 1988 called Illegally Yours with Rob Lowe. Chad, do you know, do you know that one? Seems to be a common theme on these episodes. When you ask me that, my, my uh, answer is always, you know, I just watched this movie recently. And by recently, I mean like in the last four months, maybe. And uh -huh. I, I was not familiar with it until I watched it. And, um, you know, Mask was a good movie. Is it is it that bad, huh? <laughs> it's it's not that bad. It's just, I guess, with the pedigree of Peter Bogdanovich, you would be expecting more. And Illeg illegally yours is pretty, pretty subpar for an '80s film. Well, the thing that caught me was that, according to Box Office Mojo, illegally yours only grossed two hundred and fifty nine thousand dollars at the box office. <laughs> And again, this is Peter Bogdanovich we're talking about. So, um, His most recent film before Noises Off was the 1990 film Texasville, which was the sequel to The Last Picture Show. I've never actually seen either one of those movies. I, I know The oh. Last Picture Show is supposed to be like an icon of cinema. Yeah, I, I cannot recommend Last Picture Show enough. It's, I mean, it's, and it's weird looking at these younger actors because it's got, um, I want to say Candace Bergen, and I know that's not it. Sybil um, Shepard. Sybil Shepard is the C word I was looking for. Uh, Randy Quaid and yeah, and Tim Bottoms, who would go on to play George Bush and that's our Bush on Comedy Central. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, I, I would recommend checking out Last Picture Show. I haven't seen Texasville, so I can't comment on that. Mm. Well, and then Peter Bogdanovich worked on the screenplay, but he did not take a credit for Noises Off. Instead, the credit was given to a man named Marty Kaplan. OK, I did a little digging on him and this man sounds absolutely fascinating. He studied at Harvard majored in molecular biology, and while he was there in school, he was the president of the Harvard Lampoon. After he graduated, he worked in the Jimmy Carter administration. He was a speechwriter for Vice President Walter Mondale, 
And then Jeffrey Katzenberg hired him to be a creative executive at the early days of Touchstone. He worked for them for, I think it was like 12 years. This is his first on-screen credit. And I was I read reading up on him in one of the Disney books that I have. And like I said, he, he, he was hired because Katzenberg was looking for people outside the box to be more interesting creative types. As of now, Marty Kaplan works at USC and he's involved with like uh, studying the media and the way that the news media represents pop culture. And also I watched this really cool 30 minutes, uh, kind of like a TED talk lecture that he gave a few years back at USC talking about how, how to process entertainment. He's yeah, just really interesting. I actually emailed him today because he had his USC email address available. So I'm like, ah. he also wrote a Hollywood picture that's coming out later in 1992. So if he responds, maybe I can we can get him to on the show or just get some interesting factoids about his time at Touchstone. But all right, so now we got to cast the movie, and this is just it, you know this the stage play has so many different characters in it, and so I give them credit. The casting in this movie is is brilliant. We'll start with the legendary Carol Burnett. Just like uh, she had a long career, just like Bogdanovich as well. She'd been working since the late 1950s. Her career really takes off with the Carol Burnett Show, which ran for 11 seasons and nearly 300 episodes from 1967 to 1978. And then that, of course, led to Mama's Family, which I didn't realize this, Chad. Mama's Family was only on for two years, 1983 to 84. Only two. I know it started off on NBC and then moved to syndication, but two years total? That that's according to oh. me, unless I saw something wrong. I, I only saw two years, but okay. um, film work was very limited. In fact, Noises Off was the first theatrical film she'd done in ten years. She was in Annie in 1982. Uh, of course, we got Michael Caine is returning to Touchstone after a memorable turn in the 1990 film Mr. Destiny. Uh, he only made one film in the meantime, which is a movie called Bullseye. It was released in the, United, in the U.K. in late 1990, but never had a U.S. theatrical release. It's got Michael Caine and Roger Moore, and they each play dual roles. Chet, I have to see this movie. I don't know. It's, I can't seem to find it streaming anywhere, but I have to find this movie. Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with this, but just Caine and Moore doubling up. I mean, yeah. you got more Caine in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then... Denholm Elliott, of course, that's a face that we recognize from our generation, but he had an even longer career than, Bern, than Carol Burnett and Michael Caine. His career goes all the way back to the late 1940s. As I mentioned, our generation probably knows him best from the Indiana Jones franchise. He played the character of Marcus Brody. I didn't realize that I totally forgot. He's not in Temple of Doom. He's only in Raiders mm -hmm. and yeah. Last Crusade. I guess Temple of Doom is a prequel, right? Right. Um, but in the 1980s, he'd also starred in A Room with a View and, of course, in Trading Places. Like, was he the, he's in the butler in Trading Places? Uh, I'm going to say yes. But <laughs> uh, I don't know because, yeah. I, we can fix it in post. Yeah, he's one, you know, like you said, uh, Last Crusade. I, I knew when he showed up on screen, I'm like, I know who this guy is, and I didn't recognize him. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're an Indiana Jones fan, it's Brody. You know, yeah. He gets lost in his own museum, I believe. Isn't that right? Okay, yeah. You just know him. You just know yeah. him. Uh, I did want to point out that one of the last movies that he did before Noises Off was the 1991 film Toy Soldiers, which I love that one. It's got the Coog, friend of the show. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> this would be his, his last on-screen appearance. I think he died later in 1992. Um, okay, well, we got Christopher Reeve as well. He was well-known for playing Superman. He, played, he had just finished playing the character in four different theatrical films. Uh, he also starred in Somewhere in Time, Street Smarts, 
a film called The Aviator, opposite Rosanna Arquette, not the Martin Scorsese film. And he was also in a movie called Death Trap. And Chad and I were talking about this one off the air because that starred Michael Caine and it was also a stage adaptation. Chad, I think you said you watched that one recently? Yeah, I watched that the night before we record this episode. I'd seen it a couple times, but didn't remember a whole lot about it. And it's one, if you haven't seen, I... I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give anything away, but it's an it, it's an interesting story, and it's also and we'll probably delve on this a little bit later when we talk about Noises Off um, adaptation to film. It's an interesting film that I think really you can tell was a stage play to begin with. Okay, well, I was I, I was kind of fascinated. I didn't realize this, but. After the Superman movies, Christopher Reeve was mostly doing TV movies. Yeah. And I mean, I know that TV movies were a big deal back then, but I was wondering, like, was he typecast? Like, like as if he couldn't do anything other than be Superman? Uh, you know, I did see that he he had an appearance on Carol Burnett's other variety show, which was called Carol and Company. And his most recent film before Noises Off was four years earlier, 1988, the, the movie Switching Channels. Um, I got to be honest, my favorite member of the cast was John Ritter. You know, he's... He'd been working in TV and film since the early 1970s. He'd worked with Peter Bogdanovich twice and the films Nickelodeon and They All Laughed. He had done eight seasons on Three's Company, as well as one season of Three's A Crowd and two seasons of a show that I remember the name. I cannot recall ever seeing an episode. Chad, did you ever watch Hooperman? I, I did not watch it. I, I know of it. But and he also did a movie. Um, you know, in the early 80s called Hero at Large, I believe, which I'm trying to find a copy of. But yeah, he's, you know, it's funny how John Ritter for our generation is just this guy that we all know. But if you ask me how much of his, of his body of work have I seen? Yeah, it's not that much. Yeah, I just like saying Hooper. <laughs> I believe but, he was uh, a sports in, writer, right? Uh, oh, he was a detective or something, wasn't oh, okay. he? Or yeah, again, we, we're, maybe we're both right. He was a sports <laughs> writing detective. Yeah. Maybe. Well, and of course, you know, he was in the ensemble cast of the TV miniseries of Stephen King's It. You know, um, the most recent film work he'd done before this was uh, he, the Blake Edwards film Skin Deep, as well as the two Problem Child movies. And Problem Child 2 was his most recent role before Noises Off. Uh, the cast, we could go on forever, but we'll kind of go on. We'll just mention the, some of the other supporting roles real quick. Uh, Julie Haggerty. Returns to Touchstone. This is her first film since the other, her, What About Bob, her other Touchstone film. You know, of course, we know her for the airplane movies. We also have Mary Lou Henner. She had done five seasons of Taxi, as well as the wonderful Johnny Dangerously. I, I, I can't recommend that one enough. Uh, we have Mark Lynn Baker. He was Cousin Laddie from Perfect Strangers. He also did a movie that my mother raves about, and I still have not seen it to this day. It's called My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole. I got to find that one. Yeah, I, uh, I just watched that in the last month. So it's an, and, it's an interesting film. It's very, uh, I think you would enjoy it. Yeah. I, I, I think I, my, my, my mom used to always quote it. I, I think it's probably one of those I, I think I'd probably find really charming. And then, of course, lastly, we have Nicolette Sheridan. At that point, she would have been starring in Knott's Landing. But she was also in the Rob Reiner film, The Sure Thing, which I've never seen that one. I know, Chad, that's one of the ones you liked, right? 80s film? Uh, you know, it is an 80s film, so I have a soft spot for it. But it's not... It probably would not make my list of top 50 80s films. I know I know it has a beloved following, but yeah, I just, I mean, it's Cusack and I believe Ioni Sky are the two. Okay. And, and Nicolette Sheridan plays the sure thing that John Cusack is trying to get to California to, to hook up with. But yeah, I'm, it's kind of like Say Anything. It's just not a movie that I am in that. It's not one of my 80 go-to 
80s go-to films. Okay. All right. Well, previously what we had done was we would go uh, over positives and negatives on the film. And I know, Chad, we talked about we don't like to dwell too much on the negative. We don't want to make it too much of a listicle. So as part of this reformat, I think what we, we decided we were just going to come up with questions. Were there questions that came about as we were watching the movie that we could pose at each other and, and just debate and kind of have a discussion about? I kind of broke it down into three different sections, which was performances, script, and just overall production. So, I mean, for, for, for lack of uh, just being free form, I guess we can just begin talking about the performances. Because it seemed like whenever we would do our positives and negatives in the past, one of our positives would always be one particular performance. So there had to be something that, that struck you. Um, I just want to start with my first question was... Michael Caine, obviously, he's this legendary actor. Did you think that he does a good job with that part? Because he's got, he plays the director of this play, and he has this this cast, and they can't seem to get anything right, and it's just a real mishap. And I'm wondering, did you think that he does a good job playing that character, the director, and and steering the ship? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I to to broadly answer your question, yes, because I think this this cast is so well. Uh, oiled and it just everyone does their parts well but yeah I think Michael Caine comes off well as a uh, you know Broadway director who not that he's fed up with this cast but he's just like okay what else can I do like he he tries to steer them in the right direction but they're just uh, each one has their own little quirk or you know performance anxiety moment that Mm -hmm. they just have to get through but he um, you know, he carries it well for a guy who doesn't think the play is worth seeing in a sense, <laughs> as we find out in the opening scene. Yeah. And I know that must be, must be difficult. It's going to be yeah. kind of hard to play that, that sort of role. Yeah. Cause as Chad mentioned, like what I liked about it is he's doing this, basically it's a touring production of a play and they're going to go across the country, but in the same time, he's also directing Hamlet on Broadway. And so he has to like leave the Hamlet production to come to the production that of this play that they're doing in the, in the movie. And yeah, you're right. He does kind of, he has it beneath him, but I'm sure he cares a little bit. At the same time, it sounds like he's, is he sleeping with what two of the women in the cast? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess what's funny is like, you could, be, one of them you can maybe believe, but I don't know if I could really believe the Nicolette Sheridan relationship, unless we're supposed to, you know, you always want to buy into that idea that like that young actresses will be willing to date older directors if it might help them or an older directors going through men like crisis mm-hmm. crises and they they think well i, I gotta abuse my power which is i don't know kind of weird to think about in the weinstein <laughs> era but yeah i i mean he's fun he's he, yeah. you know, he's probably the, the most the biggest name in the in the cast just because of the fact that he's uh you know the director of the play and he's also in every other movie that's ever been released <laughs> since film was invented so but yeah i did enjoy him enough and the other question i was going to ask you was was there a particular performance outside of Michael Caine that you found to be your favorite? You know, I really like Christopher Reeve and okay. You know, it's one of those things where he is, especially to our generation, he is Superman. You know, that's yeah. if you think Christopher Reeve, even if you've seen all the other films that he has done, you're probably just going to associate him with Superman. And watching this film, I found he had like this, it, like the unsureness of an actor, like the, you know, am I doing this right? Am I not like questioning everything about mm-hmm. what he, what his motive was. And, and he did it convincingly. And I mean, I, I kind of would throw it back to the scene in Superman one, when he's having dinner with Lois Lane, when Superman is 
having dinner and he she's kind of asking him questions but uh yeah i just i i was really kind of surprised at how much i enjoyed his performance and um mm-hmm. yeah and i know you i'll let you speak on john ritter but yeah i yes to answer your question it's christopher Reeve. okay freddie from your entrance with trousers round ankles so where's my other sheet some other problem freddie well since we're stopped anyway <laughs> Why did I ask? I mean, you know how stupid I am about plot. I know, Freddy. Could I ask another dumb question? All of my studies in world drama lie at your disposal. Well, I still don't understand why the Sheik just happens to look like Philip's double. Because he comes in and we all think he's, you know, and we all, I mean, that's the joke. I see that. Darling, the rest of the plot depends on it. I see that, but it is kind of a coincidence, isn't it? It is kind of a coincidence, Freddy. Yes. Until you reflect that there was an earlier draft of the play. Oh? Now, unfortunately, lost to us. Oh. And in this, the author makes it clear that Philip's father, as a young man, travelled extensively in the Middle East. I see. Ooh, I see. You see? That's very interesting. I thought you'd like that. But will the audience get it? Well, you must show them, Freddie, with looks, with gestures. That's what acting is all about, okay? Yes. Thank you, Lloyd. Well, yeah, and I wonder if, you know, it's a, you brought up a good point. I wonder if Christopher Reeve himself felt those same insecurities. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever, when he did, I think I mentioned to you off the air, but one of the movies that he does after Noises Off is The Remains of the Day, sort of like yeah. this this period piece. You know, and of course, he'd been in, in Somewhere in Time, so he'd done, you know, some serious dramatic roles, but I wonder if even he felt that he was being typecast after being Superman. And, yeah. and you know, the idea that I could see... Christopher Reeve himself being, if he's doing a stage play, I mean, I'm sure he probably did stage play. I did, I did not look to see what kind of theater work that he'd done. Well, I can answer I that imagine. for you. Okay, go ahead. Yes, he did. Three, he had done three, uh, or I'm sorry, four uh, Broadway plays in his career. Uh, prior to this movie, he had done three. Uh, Matter of Gravity in 1976, 5th of July in 1980, Marriage of Figaro in 1985, and then one called First You Dream in 2000. So, oh, okay. yeah, because I was curious, too, about, you know, what type of theater performance he uh, or theater history he had going into this. So, yeah, because he always struck me as someone that was very and I don't mean this is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but he's a little wooden. Mm. Right. Like because he's this big kind of hulk. I wouldn't say hulking, but he's he's very statuesque. Yeah. Right. And he has this this big persona. But he's also I don't, you don't really see him emote. You know, I, I mean, you said you hadn't seen Somewhere in Time. I think it's a brilliant film, but I, I don't you don't watch it for like this very stirring performance. You watch it more because it's such an interesting concept. Okay. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was it's fun to see, especially because I don't know how many, you know, I guess Superman has a, a few winks at the camera, kind of a little bit of nods of comedy. But this one is, is like a straight comedy. Every other every other movie that I mentioned him being in, like we said, with with Death Trap or Street yeah. Smart, those are like serious movies. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and again, I'm sure you're the same as me, but it was very bittersweet to watch this movie to see mm-hmm. him just because we know how, how we lost him way too soon. And also we also lost way too soon was John Ritter. And I, John Ritter was my favorite performance of the film. I thought he actually he just he shined. He had a, his impeccable timing, comic timing. And I, I love, you know, did you notice how like when his, a lot of the dialogue this character had was all these vague terms. And so it just made it kind of funny where he would be talking to the director and he'd say, you know, it's just like, you know, you know, it's just like, it's just like, and then all of a sudden we're just, you know, there it is. And it's just, mm-hmm. so it's, and, and, then, and then Michael Caine just kind of rolling his eyes, you know, and there's a couple scenes too, where there's a scene where he slides down the stairs and it's, you can tell that it's, that's him. It's not a stunt man. Like 
that's a serious take. And he was so good at that, really yeah. good at doing pratfalls. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, we lost him really, really, really soon. And, and it was so much fun to see him. And just he really owned that role. I thought I read somewhere that that my Christopher Reeve was trying to get that part originally. But then Bogdanovich gave him the other role because I'm like, I would have rather seen John Ritter as the, doing the pratfalls. Right. I agree with you. It's again, this movie is just so well cast and, and not to slight anyone else in the cast, but um, those yeah. are the two we those liked. Two, and then yeah. Michael and then Michael Caine, of course, care, but they're yeah. all great, you know, see the movie, I guess. <laughs> um, far, from a screenplay standpoint, you know, I know that the issues that people talk about with this movie is that it's, it doesn't really translate very well from the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the, the idea of the British farce is a very popular stage uh, genre. So when you're watching this movie, you know, did you, did you enjoy that? Did you find those farce elements believable or was it eye rolling? I mean, did you find the movie, was it funny? Was it hard to follow? No, I, I mean, I think this movie is, is quite amusing and quite, uh, quite funny and i'll ask you i'll kind of throw it back to you at the moment did you ever do drama club in high school did you do plays no no i haven't and that's funny you mentioned that because i was when i was doing the research for this movie i went on youtube and i found somebody i found these two guys i don't remember their names they had a movie podcast kind of like a youtube video series where they do movie reviews Mm -hmm. and the one guy was just like I did productions in high school, and that's why I relate to this movie. And so you're like, yeah, when I was in college, I had friends who were actors, and I hung out with them. And I had a class which was half film students and half theatrical uh, majors. And so we had to do, we had to work together on these projects. But I never, I've never been on the stage in that regard. Yeah, have you? Yeah, I did. I did theater all through high school. Um, one of the oh. one of the perks of going to a small school is everybody gets a role. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I was never going to be like, I'm out of here. I'm going to Hollywood and becoming a star, going to Broadway. But yeah, I did play. So I think there is an element that I can relate to of the backstage shenanigans going on and and whatnot. But um, yeah, no, I, I think the script was was fairly tight. I think it's. It, it, the three act structure that the movie lays out is very interesting in how they do it. Um, I mean, it does get a little repetitive at times because you're seeing kind of mainly just the first act over and over. But again, if you've, if you've done acting, you, you know, you understand the month of rehearsal. So you're like, Oh, this scene again. Okay. But no, I, I I thought they did a good job um, translating. And I, I looked up, the script online um, and I found the play version and I started reading it, but then I, th- I think I got through like five or six pages and then moved on. But yeah, I would be, be curious to see what differences there are between a stage script and the theatrical script. Yeah. Everything I read said that, you know, Bogdanovich and Kaplan, they, they, it was very close to the play dialogue as well. Like mm-hmm. they had to make some changes, change. Cause I guess the original play was a British play. So they had to change some of the, like the, colloquialisms and some of the pop culture references like that. But yeah, no. And I also read that. I think I said uh, the script was 225 pages long because normally for those who don't know that, you know, one page of the script is usually equal to one minute of screen time, but because of how, how quickly the dialogue is in this movie that Bogdanovich, the script was like 30, 30 seconds per page instead. So it was twice as much. Um, But yeah, you know, you mentioned that, yeah, that three act structure. I, I think the, the first act was kind of slow, but you kind of need it so that it sets up what's supposed to happen. 
you know, this whole thing about a plate of sardines. And then this character comes in and then who's this character playing and then what's going on, you know? And then, so then when you get to the second act, which is the second act is the, the, the play being performed, but you only see it from backstage. And that's why I think the second act is just brilliant, just pure brilliance because it's all, they, they, they can't talk because the play is going on to the audience on the other side of the wall. So they have to keep their voices down. And so it's a lot of nonverbal stuff as they're just running around backstage, trying to make sure that this, the play goes off. The weird part was, I thought that was going to be it. I'm like, oh, this, the movie's divided into two halves. Well, then there's a third act of the movie. And I got to be honest with you, I thought that third act was very tedious, you know, because you're seeing the, the play, you're seeing the front, you're, you're, you're in, now you're in the crowd seeing the play being performed, but now these people hate each other. And it's just, it's a really awful production. And so my, my wife and I were both kind of saying, like, it's, it's tough to watch the failing production once again, you know, especially when you come on the heels of that terrific, terrific second act, you know, thankfully the third act is very short. And I think I read that like when you're watching the stage version, when the, when the third act ends, you know, the play just ends. And so it ends as a total dismal failure, but you know, everything's okay because the audience, the, the actors come out for their curtain call. So when you're the audience, you're like, okay, there he is. Whereas in the movie, you don't see that. So that's why Bogdanovich changed the script to where it, they, get, they give it a happy ending so that, you know, the characters made out with what they were supposed to do. You know, that's that's what I thought. I thought that was actually kind of interesting. But yeah, um, I mean, I've, I found the second act a little I don't want to say tedious, but I, I thought it went on a little too long, even though it you said it's, uh, you know, not that long. But it's um, yeah, it just got a little bit of. I was like, okay, okay, we get it because, and maybe it's because it's all, it's kind of a silent film. I mean, you hear the play audio, but what's going, happening on screen is all pantomime and, and whatnot, as you said. And so I think that maybe that got a little like, okay, come on. But yeah, the third act, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it was fine, but it wasn't, I think the movie did kind of run out of steam a little bit. And I, I'll just say by only issue really that I had with the film is during the first act um, when the play is kind of running smoothly, I thought the camera work was a little jarring because the stage play is a two level house and stuff's going on upstairs, stuff's going on downstairs and the camera's kind of bouncing back and forth depending on where the action is. I think, you know, would this have worked better as maybe a three camera setup editing style? I don't know. Oh yeah, that's interesting. That's actually what I was gonna. I was gonna ask that. I was. Mm. One of the things that I liked about the film is that I was really impressed with how way, way Bogdanovich used used long takes and these sweeping camera shots. Because yeah. if you're in the audience and you're watching this play being rehearsed, the first act is just a rehearsal, yeah. and so when you're watching this rehearsal, you know your eyes can look over the entire set. Whereas when you're filming the movie, the camera has to can only show so much at a time. So I liked that it was a lot of fluid moving cameras so that you're all seeing it in real time as it unfolds. You know, I, and I, like I said, the, the blocking is great, especially that second act where everybody has to be in a certain place at a certain time. And it all just, I would imagine that this movie probably entailed the kind of rehearsals that a play would have had to have done, right. There would have had to have been weeks worth of rehearsals as well. But yeah, yeah you're saying you don't like that. You didn't like the camera. Mode. Okay, uh, well, I just found, I found it at times to be a little too jarring. It wasn't like a smooth, crane shot from one act because there's so much going on so rapidly it's yeah. um yeah you know if paul greengrass would have made this movie camera movement oh. would have been shaking all over the place yeah well i was i was curious if there was one of the things that i like about this movie a lot was that a lot of these little charms i was curious if you liked them as well like you know there's characters 
they use pet names for each other, like Sweetie and Darling. And, you know, there's a lot of amusing callbacks because, like, when they're doing the rehearsal, every time they, they one of them has a question, they'll it becomes a bigger discussion because one of the, one of the actors will just be like, well, since we're stopped, let's go ahead and discuss this a little bit more. I mean, did you like that or was it a little bit too much? No, I, I found it worked and it goes, you know, the since we've stopped aspect goes into the Michael Caine character that we discussed earlier about him just trying to get through this night. And, you know, the other aspect that we haven't mentioned is the, this rehearsal is the night before opening night and it actually leads into the early morning hours. So he's like, okay, sure. Yeah. We've got five minutes before we go on. What do you got? Like, he's just like so exasperated, exasperated as he's just like, let's just get through this rehearsal. What is, why is this taking so long? But but yeah, so at, at the end of the day, I I enjoyed the movie enough. I, I think it's a you know it's a truly underrated comedy. It deserves a lot more attention, and it was great to see so many talented actors on the top of their craft. Chad, Chad you have any, any final thoughts? Uh, I'm with you. This is a plus and surprise that uh, I've rediscovered. I'd only seen this movie one time before, and that was probably about twelve, thirteen years ago, and I I, I, I had a big smile on my face when it was over. Okay, well, before we give our final reviews, Chad, what were there some of the re- popular reviews from the popular critics at the time? Well, I don't know if they're popular. <laughs> critics, that is. Um, yeah, I, I had a hard time finding reviews for this, actually, from, from notable, you know, I could have gone with KDLS Channel 7 CBS in Boise, Idaho. But <laughs> uh, no, for uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times says, there are a number of hefty laughs scattered throughout Noises Off. Peter Bogdanovich's screen version of Michael Fran's English stage farce. Yet there are nowhere near as many as the source material deserves and Mr. Bogdanovich's cast might have otherwise earned. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then Angie Arago from Empire Online wrote, the jokes start wearing thin and most of the noisy characters become rather tedious. Well before the brag bag of thespians finally pitch up on Broadway. Two stars. And... You know, I like trying to find a Roger Ebert review. He's kind of my go-to. And I couldn't find a written review. And I couldn't find, unless my memory is playing tricks on me, I I seem to remember Siskel and Ebert reviewing this on their TV show. Because one thing that really stuck out to me, and you kind of hinted at it when you're talking about the rehearsals, is I believe Ebert's criticism of this movie was you know, on stage, everything has to run smoothly and everything has to hit their mark. Whereas in this film, it's all edited together so that you could, you know, if it doesn't go well, you just do another shot or you edit the take to line up. And and so that kind of killed his, um, not his enjoyment, but just the spontaneity of the, of the movie itself. Yeah. I'd read that supposedly they both gave it thumbs down. Mm. That's all. I, I, I think I saw that somewhere, but yeah, mm-hmm. that was the thing. I, I kept seeing random reviews, whether it be something online or, you know, or just the, of that time. And it seemed like almost every negative review, it, had, it seemed like it had a lot more negative reviews than mm-hmm. positive reviews. And almost every negative review compared it to the stage play. And I'm like, yeah. is that fair? I don't yeah. know if that's, if that's fair. You're, because you have to think about it as watching it as a movie itself, which is mm-hmm. kind of one of the reasons I enjoyed it the first time I saw it back in the day it was because I had no concept of the stage play version and I just enjoyed it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I give this movie a seven, okay. a, a solid seven. I thought it was really charming. It's got a terrific cast. And I love the pace, that really frenetic pace. It doesn't take any time to just 
to stop and slow down. It's like if you're going to see a movie, it's about 100 minutes long. And yet, you know, like I like it's it's entertaining, especially those first two acts. Third act's a little bit tricky to get through. But if you like the characters enough, you can enjoy it. No, I'm with you. And I, I, you know, my review that I've written here just says fun madcap comedy with a talented cast. I I think it could have trimmed maybe 10 minutes off just to kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, punch it up a little bit. And I don't know why it underperformed at the box office, as we'll discuss later. I, you know, because this is a talented cast of popular actors at the time. I don't know why people didn't go and see it. Um, but I'm with you. I give it a seven as well. I, okay. I think, yeah. If, I mean, I would recommend this movie if you've not seen it. I actually did recommend this movie yesterday to a friend. I'm like, if you get a chance, oh. see this movie. Yeah, I, mean, I bought it on DVD. Actually, I take it back. I believe you bought it for me as a birthday present or yeah. a Christmas present back in the day on DVD, and I still have it. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of. I felt the same way. Like it's, I think more people should see this one. Yeah. Um, I couldn't really find a whole lot of trivia on the film. I I did read that one of the alternate titles that they had was Doors and Sardines, which kind of refers to the the, the sardines keep playing a, a role, and there's always these doors opening. Yeah. That's a terrible title for a movie. Yeah. Chad. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. That's that's awful. Um, yeah. I never really understood. You hear Michael Caine say noises off a few times in the movie, but I guess that's a term for the background noises that play during a production of a, of a, sta- of a stage play so that the, the audience kind of adds a little ambiance. But um, the only really other thing on trivia was had to do with some of the original people that originally cast or were offered the roles. I saw that the Carol Burnett role was originally offered to Audrey Hepburn. I can only imagine how that would have <laughs> that would have been pretty interesting. Uh, the, the great John Gilgood was offered Denholm Elliott's role. And I saw that Annie Potts was ca- actually cast in the Mary Lou Henner role, but had to drop out. I read something that she was in an accident, but then I never could confirm that. I thought so I I'll saw a say, broken leg or something. Something like that. And then when I looked up Annie, Annie Potts' car accident, broken leg, it was something that had happened years earlier. Mm-hmm. So I never could put the timeline together. But yeah, but I think Annie Potts was in Texasville. I could be wrong. But so maybe she was fresh on the mind there. But hey, I'm a Mary Lou Henner fan. I always kind of liked her from back in the day. Uh, well, rather than looking at like whether the uh, sequel or remake potential like we looked at before, I just want to have a look at the legacy of the film. And I really feel like, you know, the stage version is very often produced. I think Bogdanovich said that it was one of the, the most ever produced plays as far as how many different community theater productions had done it. Um, I know we've talked about it before, but Chad, I, I think I would definitely want to go see the stage version as well, like you said, because yeah. now that we know what it's about and to see how it's because I like how the second act of the film is done from behind the stage. And so I don't know if what how the second act plays when you're sitting in the audience, because I wonder if it's even more repetitive because you're not getting to see behind the wall. I think it would have been awesome if if the second act of the play flips the stage around uh-huh. and then pipes in crowd noise and then you're seeing what's going on behind. That's I thought that would have been kind of neat personally but yeah um, that's why I'm, I, I'm curious if if they have a rotating uh, set that they can flip around to show you the backstage because i would think that ha- would be what you're seeing but yeah i don't know I, and again working in very very small scale theater obviously we didn't have the type of uh, carpentry skills or budget to to build but i <laughs> yeah if this uh if this movie or play ever gets a revival i i will be there during its run at some point oh for sure for sure all right the last thing i want to point out uh we'll go into the box office a little bit later but i always always like to look and see if there was a personal connection with any of the cast or filmmakers um with these touchstone films and it's so funny for for being a cast that had that's so wide and broad 
Um, the only connection I could come up with was there was a day, and I'm pretty sure, Chad, you were with me. We went to a show at the Viper Room. And that room is, if anybody's ever been there, it's tiny, tiny room. It's a lot of standing, you know, but there's a couple of booths off to the side of the, of, of the stage. And so at one point I was standing in the middle of the room and in the booth was Peter Bogdanovich. And I don't know exactly what he was there because if I had to guess, I'm thinking maybe it was when, we, when for one of the many, many times that we saw this band called Kill Lola and their lead singer was an actress. So I don't know if he was doing something and he wanted to come see her but yeah you can't miss peter radonovich when you see him he's instantly recognizable and so i mean do you remember that chad you i think you're with me i mean it sounds vaguely familiar but i if you had asked me about this before telling me about it i would not have remembered it yeah like i said and as far as i know there's no one else have you met anybody else in this cast or seen anybody else i couldn't think of anything no yeah and it's a shame that we neither one of us would get a chance to, to, to meet john ritter or christopher reeve that yeah. would have been great but again, that's the reason. Go see this movie, not just because we both loved it and it's a fun, fun farce, but go see John Ritter and Christopher Reeve. It's, yeah. it's well worth your time. Freddie Love, why does anyone do anything? Why does that other idiot go out of the front door holding two plates of sardines? I mean, I'm not getting at you, love. Of course not, Lord. I mean, why do I? I mean, Jesus, when you come to think about it, why do I? Who knows? Who knows? You see, Freddie? The wellsprings of human action are deep and cloudy. Maybe something happened to you when you were a very, very, very small child that made you frightened to let go of groceries. Or it could be genetic. Yes, or it could be, you know. Could, could well be. Of course, thank you. I understand all that. Freddie Love, I'm telling you, I don't know. I, I don't think the author knows. I don't know why the author came into this industry in the first place. I don't know why any of us came into it. All the same, if you could just give me a reason I could keep in my mind. All right, I'll give you a reason. You carry those groceries into the study, Freddie, honey. Because it's just slightly after midnight. And we're not going to be finished before we open tomorrow night. Correction. Before we open tonight! Well, as we mentioned, as part of this reformat, we want to try something a little bit different. And because both Walt Disney Pictures and Hollywood Pictures were producing so much content around the same time, we wanted to look at a couple of movies that, actually two movies that were produced by Hollywood Pictures that came out in the same spring of 1992 that bore some thematic similarities to Noises Off, just to kind of get an idea of what was going on in the studio. Maybe these films were all in development at around the same time. Um, so the first one we want to discuss is a movie that came out two weeks before Noises Off. It came out on March the 6th, and it's called Blame It on the Bellboy. And now a few words for those who loved a fish called Wonka. Letches make me puke. This year's British comedy hit is Blame It on the Bellboy. With all the action, <laughs> sex, Good Lord. and danger of a sophisticated British comedy. <laughs> Hollywood Pictures presents Dudley Moore, Brian Brown, and Bronson Pinchot in this year's hottest import. And the throwing a woman to boot. Blame it on the Bellboy, rated PG-13. Now, this was written and directed by Mark Herman. He'd only done two short films before this. This is his very first theatrical feature, and I think that kind of reminds you of of Jeffrey Katzenberg's plan that he talked about, trying to find talent when they're on their way up. You know, I think we had this with True Identity the year before. It seems like there's other touchstone movies where it's a lot of first-time uh, directors. You know, thematically, I think the movie definitely compares Two Noises Off in the sense that it, it's another farce. I mean, this movie is a total farce. The, the concept being that there are three different people trying to check into this hotel in Venice, and the bellboy gets them confused because their names are very similar. And what is it, Chad? One's a hitman, 
One is trying to meet a woman from a dating service. And another guy is trying to buy, buy a villa, buying a property, right? And so then, because they all get mixed up, then, you know, one goes here, one goes there. And so it's definitely that, that like that same kind of farce. Chad, you saw it before I did. Do you see, did you see the similarities? And what did you think of Blame It on the Bellboy? Oh, yeah. When I watched Blame It on the Bellboy, I'm like, okay, this is totally paired up with Noises Off. And, you know, I thought it was a great concept. Yeah, it's a great concept. <laughs> Well, I think when I was watching it, because I watched the film uh, the night before we recorded, and I, yeah, I, it was very, it's a very disappointing film, yeah. you know, but it remind, it made me, it made me have that much more of a fonder appreciation for Noises Off, mm-hmm. because it shows you how difficult farce can be to do, you know, and I, I found myself looking through, like, how often is, like, farce really done, you know, I mean, we had a, we had a Touchstone film in 1991 that was a farce, which was Oscar, and that's brilliant. You know, again, in the hands of good filmmakers, we're talking about that was John Landis. We got Bogdanovich from Noises Off. No disrespect to Mark Herman. But again, this is like this first movie. And I'm wondering if he had that he had that touch to be able to pull this off. Um, I did see that there was another movie that came out on the same day as Blame it on the Bellboy, which I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it a farce, but it's called Once Upon a Crime. And I don't know if do you remember that one. It's like this ensemble. I think Sybil Shepard and Richard Lewis and it, they're, they're in Monte Carlo and Blame it on the Bellboy is in Venice. So it's weird to have these two movies come out on the same day that have a similar concept with all these, you know, mistaken identities and people trying to get from one place to another. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not. That that one does not ring a bell. Yeah, I may have to go find that one. And there was another movie that I remember. It, it comes out in April of 1992 that was called Brain Donors. And the reason I bring that up is because when I was a kid, I saw that. Let's see, when I was a kid. I was in high school when I saw that. And I really enjoyed it. And I remember thinking, I've never seen a Marx Brothers movie and from what I gather, that is a Marx Brothers movie. It's John Turturro as Groucho, more or less, and then just these this madcap farce. Chad, I know you love yourself the Marx Brothers movies. Have you ever seen Brain Donors? Do you know that one? I, I've not seen it, but I'm with you, I know that it's been compared to a Marx Brothers film, so I'm interested in seeing it. It's just, I think, due to lack of success, it's not readily available, or you know, doesn't. It's it's just not streaming anywhere. It, as you would like to in these in yeah. this day and age of streaming. It's just a kind even, of a movie that's been forgotten. I don't even see if there's physical copies. Like, has yeah. it been released on Blu-ray? Maybe a DVD. But yeah, even if you looked, from what I saw in 1991, there was, there was a movie called Pure Luck, which I think we talked about that. That's What, what did we saw? Full on Marty? Full on Marty. Uh, yeah. Full on Marty, Marty, Marty Short. Short. You know, and then there was another movie called Soap Dish that I absolutely love, which you can kind of call it a farce. Big ensemble comedy, a lot of madcap stuff happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't see a lot of, at least not only how much time farce has done, but also how successful it is. And from what I gathered, the only real successful one that I'd seen was in 1989, the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movie, see no evil, hear no evil. You know, it it was number, that movie was number one in its first two weeks and it grossed almost $50 million on a $18 million budget. And so I'm thinking like, would that have been like the moment you know, I mean, we had had, uh, in 1988, there was Fish Called Wanda, you know, that hey, that won Kevin Klein an Oscar, you know, but it was like Fish Called Wanda, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and then The Dream Team with Michael Keaton, which I think you said you've seen that one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you yeah. think that might have been a, like a piggybacking thing where they're like, oh, these are popular, let's try to do more farces, and then you realize, wait, this doesn't work very well on a film versus a stage? Yeah, maybe we're just... You know, maybe it's the comedy that they were trying to go with. Um, yeah, I don't know. But again, 
looking at the, the history of these films or the legacy of them, I was surprised at how poorly they all did. And I, and I don't know why that, you, you know, blame it on the bellboy. You could say like, okay, the cast isn't as well known as, um, as the cast in noises off, but I, I just don't know why, why these movies didn't connect with an audience. Well, like I said, I just maybe people had moved on. Maybe. People had moved on from yeah. farce because what I thought was interesting too was if you look at let's look at if you look at Blake Edwards and we talked about him earlier with the the movie Skin Deep with John Ritter, um, you know he was known for doing these great farces. Obviously, he did all those Pink Panther movies and stuff back in the day, but he released Victor Victoria in 1982, and for the next ten years he put out ten films and they all more or less bombed. The only one that was moderately successful was Blind Date. And there was also another one with Dudley Moore called Mickey and Maude that mm. it, it did okay, but not great. But the rest of his movies, you know, we're talking about a fine mess and skin deep movies. These were, these just did not play very well. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like maybe the audiences weren't ready or they just had moved on. They didn't appreciate that kind of movie. Maybe. Cause you know, I've gone back and watched um, several comedies from the late seventies, early eighties in, in the last year. And I, I find that the humor it's very different than, you know, humor of today, but even so much as to even call these films comedies is, it seems like a stretch in today's environment because yeah, they might have a little bit of, of humor, but they're not, um, they're more dramedies than anything. So I don't know if, mm -hmm. yeah, if, if it was just a, you know, uh, looking at the eighties and, and pop culture and maybe trends changed, times changed and, and that style of film just kind of went out of favor for a while. Yeah. That, that's the only thing I could explain how even noises off didn't do that well either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I, you know, I always like to, I, I was want to look at the personnel connections because it just seems like, you know, a person gets cast in a touchstone movie, they're going to appear in a Hollywood movie and vice versa or a Disney movie. And so in this movie alone, you had, you had Brian Brown, who honestly, I think Brian Brown was one of the best parts mm -hmm. of this movie. His, his story, his storyline Whereas the hitman and this woman he's supposed to kill and falls in love with him. That I like that storyline a lot. Um, Brian Brown, of course, had been in Cocktail in 1988. Uh, did you recognize the the actor? Him is his name is Andreas Katsoulis. He played he played the mobster huh. Scarpa in Blame It on the Bellboy. He was he played Frank Langella's henchman in True Identity the year before. And so it's like oh, it's like wait, quick, we need we need a we need a henchman, we need a, a mob boss. But with that guy who did in True Identity. And then, of course, you want to talk about connections. Mark Lynn Baker was in Noises Off. Bronson Pinchot was in Blame It on the Bellboy. Of course, they starred together on Growing Pains. No, I mean Perfect Strangers. They were in Perfect Strangers. I saw that. I did not. This blew my mind. When these two movies came out, Noises Off, Blame It on the Bellboy, Perfect Strangers was wrapping up its seventh season. I think it even had an eighth season. I don't remember the show being on that long. I was not watching it by the 90s. <laughs> No, yeah, I think once Harriet left to uh, go hang out with Stefan Urkel, that show kind of took a, a dive down. Yeah, a dive that, down. I mean, that, 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 that went for a run, and then Purpose yeah. Rangers just went away. But, you know, and you talk about like, this idea of, of comedies or farces not being as popular because a lot of the more comedies in that area, would you, be, you would call them more of a dramedy. And I think that might describe the other Hollywood picture that I want to discuss, which also came out around the same time frame. And it's a film uh, called Passed Away. From Hollywood Pictures, Jack Scanlon has gone. 
to a better place. Dad? Unfortunately, the rest of the Scanlons are still here. Wouldn't mind sleeping in Frank's old bedroom, would you, boy? Oh, I'll sleep anywhere. We all know that. But now... Whoa! Dad's really wasted. His family has some questions to answer. If he shot the sheriff but didn't shoot the deputy, who did? Passed Away, rated PG-13, starts Friday, April 24th. Once again, we have another first-time director. This was Charlie Peters. That name sounds familiar for Touchstone fans. He was one of the writers for the, of the screenplay of Three Men and a Little Lady. And so, of course, Dancy Travis is a part of the ensemble cast, and she had been in Three Men and a Baby, Three Men and a Little Lady. You, we have Tim Curry and Peter Rieger, two excellent actors. I love seeing them just about anything they're in. They had just done Oscar in 1991 for Touchstone. Um, thematically, I, you know... Once again, it's another ensemble comedy, you know, and when, when we're looking, I was looking at the box office. It didn't it seems like there were there were comedies, one here, one there, but not that many that were ensembles other than this movie, Once Upon a Crime, that I, that I came out. So I don't understand why, you know, did it have a chance to stick or at least to resonate with people? Maybe do you think Katzenberg's idea of the singles and doubles maybe backfired a little bit because it seemed like they were putting in. This wide ensemble, you know, this movie is basically Bob Hoskins and Nancy Travis and Peter Riegert and Francis McDormand and William Peterson, you know, not huge stars, but good actors acting, you know, opposite one another. Is that a sort of a, I don't say recipe for, for failure, but just the fact that they didn't have the huge star to get the home run. They had to go for the single or the double. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a good strategy to... You know, instead of going with all up and coming actors or, or you know lesser knowns, that you have you have names in this in this movie, like you said, um, Nancy Travis was in Three Men and a Baby, uh, Bob Hoskins, you know, probably best known to an American audience for uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit at this time. It, I and and this is a movie again. I don't understand why it didn't connect with an audience, and so. I'm curious when we get to the box office to see what else was was out at the time that was getting the audience in, into the theater because I, I just I I am baffled <laughs> again when I when I started <laughs> researching and I and I was looking at you know where these movies placed on the year end uh, box office I was I was shocked at how how far down they were yeah you know what's so funny is. You know, we talk about one of the reasons that I wanted to do this reformat was because you and I were both in high school at the time going to a lot more movies. And I had just moved to Kentucky and I saw Passed Away in the theater mm. because it was one of those ones. I'm sure it was like a second run theater. There was about three or four different movie theaters in our neighborhood, at least where we're then, you know, a 15, 20 minute drive. And I think I had just gotten a driver's license. And so I and I really I remember it being really charming and watching it again reminds me of again, why I'm so happy that we started this podcast and also why I'm so happy for streaming services <laughs> out there because these, I like that these kind of movies exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like these movies are only being made now, you know, as direct to streaming service movies, like, right? Like the Netflix and the Amazon. These movies like this aren't getting made into theaters. Now, granted, we're going to find out why because they bomb at the <laughs> box office. And it's a shame because I... It's just absolutely adore this movie. And if anything comes out of this this episode, yes, go see Noises Off. I want anybody who's listening, go watch Passed Away because I I just I don't know it it gave me it has a smile on my face the whole time, 
And I was laughing. Mean, I was laughing out loud at several of the jokes. They landed much more than I thought they were going to land. You know, to give you a quick idea, it's it's about this family. Their father dies and they all have to come back together for uh, the funeral. But it's like they're an Irish family. So they have like this extended wake, you know, and then Nancy Travis shows up and she's this mysterious figure. And so they're trying to figure out who she is. But then you also get that great like if you have a if you have a sibling, you should like this movie because it's 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 fun for, to see the the interplay between the brothers and sisters in the film. And I think one of the things that I like about the singles and doubles aspect of not having big names is they're more believable as siblings. Have you ever watched a movie where you're like, Tom Cruise is supposed to be a si- the, 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 the brother of this character, and you're like, but it's Tom Cruise. You know, if we see Nancy Travis and, and William Peterson and Bob Hoskins and Pamela Reed, you know, maybe you, don't, maybe you don't know them very well, and you're like, okay, I can buy them as siblings because I've never seen them in 14 other movies and I know that they're movie stars. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we talk about character actors a lot on this podcast and, and not that these are character actors, but I think there, there is a difference between a movie star and an actor. And mm-hmm. the movie star is the person that, you know, going in what you're going to get. And, and maybe that's why one of the reasons that these films didn't connect with an audience is because you know, you don't know what you're going to get out of them, unlike a Tom Cruise or, you know, now a Will Smith or or something like that. It's just if you're getting people playing real people, you know, does that entice an audience that maybe is looking for escapism? Yeah. What is it? It's just and maybe is it, is it a marketing thing? I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a shame. It really is. And what's funny is you, you talk about you try to connect this back to noises off. There's one moment in Passed Away that becomes like a farce, and it's Bob Hoskins' character. He's got he's got a hotel room, and he he gives the hotel room key to this woman and says, "I want you to give this key to my dad's mistress, because that's who he thinks Nancy Travis is." But then it's not, and so he shows up, and it's somebody different. Like it's one of those ones. That's the one part of the movie where I could see it coming a mile away. You know, maybe it's because I just watched Noises Off. But, you know, it's funny because that was my least favorite element of that movie. And but I will say maybe it's just because of what it was. I think when I saw Passed Away in 1992, I had never been to a funeral before. And and in the last 30 years, unfortunately, I've had I've been to a handful and including, you know, the death of my one of my own parents. And so I know what it's like. And I know like there was a movie that Cameron Crowe did a few years back that was very negatively received called Elizabethtown. And. I like that movie a lot. And I know a lot of people don't. And I always tell people it's because that reminds me of my own situation when my mother died, because it's about a person going back home for a funeral and then having all these people come up to them and say, oh, I'm your aunt's father's mother, you know, and then you go, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it really brought me back. Plus, I also lived in Kentucky and I used to go to the mall in Elizabethtown. So that it's maybe it's my own personal thing. And so seeing passed away when I was in high school, I thought it was okay seeing it now. I just, I absolutely loved it. I, I think you liked it a little bit more than I did. I just found, I, I thought there was too much going on. You know, maybe mm-hmm. there were too many family members and, and the Bob Hoskins character, I I felt just when, when Nancy Travis shows up and they think that he's, you know, she's the mistress and Bob Hoskins is like, well, if she slept with my dad, then she'll sleep with me too. And I'm going to leave my wife and go. And it's like, it just that whole storyline really didn't resonate with me. And 
Yeah. And then there's another storyline with um, Frances McDormand coming back, who she is a nun, I believe, in South America. And she brings this um, illegal immigrant back with her and the feds show up looking for him. And it's just like, I don't know. To me, that was all too for – for the tone of the movie, this went too far into comedy farce yeah. territory. So That's – that's fair, but that's yeah. also fierce. Fierce, yeah. Fair? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and but it, lastly, great locations filming in Pittsburgh. I, I, I love the city of Pittsburgh. I got to go there and I, I enjoyed my time there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I'll ask um, you real quick if one of the reasons why you like this movie too is one of the smaller roles uh, is the, the cousin Karen role, who was played by Kristen Minter. Okay. From Cool as Ice. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I did not realize it until after the fact when I was doing my research, but I was like, the lady from Cool as Ice was in there, too. Uh, so, again, go see Passed Away. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know who didn't see Passed Away? The American viewing audience. Uh, so we'll look at the box office. And unfortunately, there, there was something that all three of these films had in common, which I'm going to give away right now. Spoiler. They were all only on the box office charts for one week. One week. Um, the first one, Blame It on the Billboy, that was released on March 6th, but it was only released on 460 screens. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, maybe was, was Hollywood not confident? They, they, or they didn't want to spend the, the extra money? Maybe, maybe after, the, after they filmed it and it tested, they, did, they said, you know what, this isn't going to do very well. I don't know. Maybe it's, that shows a lack of confidence to me. Uh, you know, it, the one week it's on the charts, it finished 12th, and it only made $1.3 million dollars. You know, like I said, not a whole lot of comedies. The only movies that opened against it was The Lawnmower Man and Gladiator, the boxing movie with Cuba Gooding Jr., not the Russell Crowe movie. Um, there were, you know, there was other Disney movies that were on the charts around the same time. You know, Beauty and the Beast, Hand That Rocks the Cradle, The Hollywood Picture, and also The Medicine Man, which we'll discuss on a future episode. Uh, those were still in the box office, hovering like 8th, ninth, 10th, you know. Blame on the Bellboy only grosses $3 million in its entire theatrical run. I don't know. Maybe it's because people didn't relate. Like you said, if it's a British film, because from what I saw, the only other comedies that were on the charts, other than Once Upon a Crime, Wayne's World was number one. Okay, I'll give you that. Wayne's World, it had been in its fourth week. I believe it was number one all four weeks. But the only other comedies that were out in theaters at the time were Memoirs of an Invisible Man and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Now, unless people were just hankering, because I believe Golden Girls was just about to go off the air. And people needed to get an Estelle Getty fix, or was Stallone still a draw? Like, if those are your choices, blame it on the Bellboy Stopper, my mom will shoot, or Memoirs of Invisible Man. I'm like, eh, that doesn't seem so bad. Well, you look at it, though, blame it on the Bellboy doesn't, you know, your biggest name in that cast is Bronson, Bronson Pinchot at the time. So how does he stack mm-hmm. up against Sylvester Stallone and Chevy Chase, who... You know, yeah. even though Memoirs of an Invisible Man is not a great film, Chevy Chase was still kind of, well, I think his family still went and saw his movies at that time. <laughs> okay, but then how do you explain, okay, so it doesn't have a big cast. Well, then you have Noises Off. You know, that came yeah. out on March 20th. Again, only 100, 450 screens, and it's one week in the box office charts. It finished 15th. It didn't, didn't even make a million. It made 981000 at the box office. You know, not the only movies that opened against it were the Woody Allen film Shadows and Fog, which was a limited release, and ba- and then Basic Instinct, which topped the box office chart. You know, I, you know, one of the things I always look at when you see these small releases, 450 screens, 
I at least want to look at like your per screen average. Sometimes you'll say, oh, it only made a million at the box office, but it, you know, per screens, it's got you know X amount. Well, according to the per screen average of that week, the one week noises off was on the chart, it didn't even crack the top ten. In per screen average, which I thought was would have been, you know, at least blaming on the bellboy had done that. Um, just I guess I said like blaming on the like blaming on the bellboy. Noises off only has the one week on the charts. It leaves after the theaters after only grossing two point three million dollars, and the budget was thirteen and a half. So fortunately, yet another bomb. Again, your your comedy choices. Mm-hmm. Stop for my mom will shoot. Wayne's World. My cousin Vinny had just come out the week before, so. Okay, I'll give you some credit if you don't want to go see Superman and Jack Tripper yeah. in a comedy when you can go see Wayne's World or My Cousin Minnie. But um, then one month later, you get Passed Away, which can't, which was released on April 24th. Again, only 582 screens, so a little bit more. But it finishes 14th, and it only gets makes a million and a half dollars. And it opened against movies like Year of the Comet and White Sands. So there would have been options. If people want to go to the movies and see something new, why not go see that dude from Roger Rabbit? You know, and the lady yeah. from Three Men and a Baby, who's actually getting to use her real accent, not speaking <laughs> with a British accent. Um, again, just like the other two movies, it only gets one week on the box office charts, and then it falls off. But it grosses $4 million in its entire theatrical run. Again, blame it on the bellboy. Noise is off. Passed away. All three movies combined make less than ten million at the box office. I, I mean, you're right. I, I just I don't get it. Yeah. You got, but again, you said we got Wayne's World competing against it. You got my cousin Vinny. White Man Can't Jump had just come out. Had come out as well. I will I will say I saw all those movies in the theater. Well, maybe not my cousin Vinny. White, White Man Can't Jump and Wayne's World I saw in the theaters. But now you got a little bit more competition. I saw that Beethoven the dog family comedy that had come out as well so maybe you got a little bit more competition you got three of the best comedies of the early 90s and beethoven so i mean have you did you ever see beethoven was that any good (laughs) i have watched that in the last year and it's it's what you would expect it to be it's you know it it doesn't over deliver but it doesn't underperform either it's if you want to see charles groden be hassled by a giant saint bernard then beethoven is the movie for you yeah, and I guess people were seeing that rather than seeing Passed Away. For shame, for shame. Uh, well, also for shame, I always like to look and see if the movie's gotten the awards consideration. Well, I was surprised. Passed Away, Passed Away managed to get an uh, award nomination. Tim Curry was nominated as the funniest supporting actor in a motion picture at the 1993 American Comedy Awards. And he loses to Tom Hanks in League of Their Own. So, uh, well, just in conclusion, I, you know, again, I want to I look and see what these Disney films were doing and what was going on at the time as they were released. But I, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I agree with Katzenberg. This was, this was a chance to drop some singles and doubles. It's, is it his fault that they didn't do as well at the box office? Maybe not, but there were three movies that at least charmed me, two movies that I really loved. And one of them that still had some enjoyable moments to them. Do you think he was okay? Do you think they did okay with these three films and green lighting them? Yeah, I can, I can totally see where they were coming from in, in, making these films, you know, it's just that trying to figure out why audiences didn't go and and see them. And and again, you know, we're looking at these movies 30 years on. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting if we could go back in time and just see how much promotion they had, how much, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the theater count. I am curious what an average movie was opening up at that time. 
because, you know, now it's like if you're not on 3,500 screens, you're nothing. But this was right before the rise of the multiplex. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if they were hoping, you know, open them small, get word of mouth and then move them more, you know, across the country. I I don't know. I just I, I was really surprised that, again, that noise is out. And I also think maybe it's, you know, we talk about who doesn't want to go see Superman, but maybe people don't want to see Superman do comedy. Maybe they want <laughs> not, him not be, not be Superman, right? Yeah, and, and that you know, and that's why Christopher Reeve took the role because he's like, I don't want to be Superman. I can do more, um, but yeah, you know, audiences, you know, it's like when Tom Cruise goes and does something less than Tom Cruisey, he's he's big enough that he still gets a, a reaction or audience, but not, you know, he's not getting Mission Impossible numbers for uh, the smaller films. Yeah, no, very good point. Yeah. And like to answer your question, you're talking about like back then, it looks like from what I could see on the box office charts, the movies that were opening, like the big movies, 1500, okay. 1800 screens, maybe 2000, you know, so there's two ways to look at it. You can either say, well, it's only 1000 less screens, but you could say it's coming out on a third, 30 percent, 25 percent as many screens. So, you know, there, maybe there was th- fewer theaters around, so maybe it would have been harder to find it. But then even a movie like What's Upon a Crime, I saw only it was only on the box office charts for about three weeks. And then it kind of it started OK. And then it just dropped off as, as well. But well, but again, like you said, it's 30 years later. We can look at them from re- retrospectively. And that's why I would like to point out that all three films, if you want to watch them, they are all streaming on Hoopla, Hoopla Digital, a wonderful site, which is you just put your public library card in and you could stream 15 movies a month or listen to CDs. I love it. And I'm so glad that the service exists because it gave me a chance to watch at least, well, noises off I had on DVD, but give me a chance to watch Flynn on the Bellboy and especially passed away. Well, the good thing is on our next episode, we get to discuss a very successful movie. So Disney does rebound fairly quickly after a pretty dismal spring. Uh, that movie, of course, is the, it launches a beloved franchise and it stars an Oscar winning actress. What movie is it? Well, you're just gonna have to tune in next time to find out. Uh, this has been Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I'm also, I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account, which is at Out of Touchstone. If you want to shoot me an email, it's outoftouchstone at gmail.com. My co-host, Chad Smart, he's on Twitter at Chad Smart. He also is the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the hashtag PCPN. Chad, do you have any final thoughts as we say goodnight? Uh, I was just said, sitting here thinking, I really need to come up with a catchphrase to end these shows. Um, so I'm just going to say insert witty comment here. This is out of touchstone and we're out of time. Out of touchstone is a honey nerds production. For more information, visit out of touchstone.com. Like, and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.